This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919-1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. Listen and follow the Left Wing Rugby podcast with me, Will Slattery and Luke Fitzgerald. As far as I can see, I always want to get in the Irish team. And that should be every young player's dream and ambition in this country. And if you're playing in a place where you're not going to get the opportunities in the big games, that they're the ones that get you picked. They are the ones, the Champions Cup games are the ones that get you picked. You need to be playing in a team and starting in a team for those games. It's as simple as that if you want to play in the Irish team. Every week on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Listeners should be aware this podcast contains strong language. Today on the Indo Daily, a story of drugs, crime, and redemption. They'd obviously gained entry and they had seen a letter with my name on it and my phone number, and they had rang my phone. And if anybody in the room had seen me that day, they would have seen the blood drain from my face. Um, I picked up the phone, they said, Look, um, it's Blanchardstown, a thing, this guy station here, and we've raided your property and we found something that you might want to come back here. And I was like, uh oh. I was first driving at the estate, there was like six or seven squad cars, and then I remember walking to the apartment and there was like 12 guys just standing and sitting down. And you know, I was hoping that they found maybe a robbed laptop or something, but it wasn't. It was all the drugs. It found 59 quarters of crack cocaine bagged up and sealed in a safe and an ounce of heroin as well. For years, Daniel Moore felt he didn't fit in anywhere before realising that only he could turn his life around. Walking up to the door of Kilmoyne Lodge, I was shaking. Pure fear, fear of the unknown, fear of everything. What am I doing here? It was actually scarier going into treatment than I was going into prison. I'm Kevin Doyle and today on the Indo Daily, we hear a story of life inside prison and what happens afterwards. Daniel... You've come in today to tell a story that involves an upbringing in foster care, drug addiction, time in prison, and I I, I might as well give away the ending, a better ending, a happier ending. Why do you want to talk about all of this? Well, I suppose the real reason I'd like to talk about it is to raise awareness um, that there is help out there and that anybody that is struggling, um, that doesn't have to be a life. Well, let's go back... to your youth yeah. in some ways because you started getting involved with a bit of alcohol, a bit of drugs, messing with the wrong people at a very young age. But you say you didn't have a bad upbringing even though you didn't know your parents. No, so I wouldn't have had a, I wouldn't have had any relationship with my actual biological parents. I never knew my father was, my mother, the relationship put them there. I had a great upbringing when it comes to the f- my foster parents who looked after me, um, they were actually my auntie and uncle, believe it or not. Um, but yeah, I had a great upbringing, but I think there was just something that just didn't fail, right? And I sort of went with that, you know? Um, did I, f- I felt a little bit left out? Yeah, I did. Did I think I was the sort of black sheep of the family? Maybe these things crossed my mind. Um, and did I use them as excuses? I would have, yeah. Um so as time went on, I I seeked acceptance. Obviously, not feeling too accepted in a family home, which, look, 
I was accepted, but me personally, I wasn't accepted enough. That's that's obviously how I felt. Um, so I seeked acceptance, and what I done was everything to try and be accepted. And as part of that, you started doing drugs. Yeah, so I would have started doing drugs at a young age um, and drinking alcohol. alcohol what, what's at a young the young age, age now? 13, 14? Yeah, like 13, 14. I think I was probably around, I think I probably would have been 12 or 13 when I first tried smoking hash. How does a 12-year-old even get hash? So it was actually, we were, in a, we were in a friend's house and he was like, look, I found this in my brother's pocket. And I was like, I don't know if anybody listening they'd probably know. It was like a quarter of hash, um, just a little block. And we barely didn't know any what, what to do with it, but... We attempted to smoke it, and me being me, I went. I remember I went out and I. Uh, this is so funny. I went out and I um, the girl who I'm with now, um, saying her and me wanting to show off. I was like, oh look what we have, look what we have, you know. And she was like, oh, I'm telling. So she actually she actually told, and I remember I got grounded for like three months or something like that. But uh, still to this day, I hold it. I was like, you rat on me. She's like, I didn't. I was just looking out for you. But um, we started. Yeah. So like at that age, I was intrigued to know what it was about. Um, and then from then, I started obviously drinking alcohol. I was just, I was just curious, I guess. Um, I then got a job in the local pub. Um, and if anybody knows the Court of Inn, it's a great old boozer, but it's a bit of a mad shop, you know? Back then it wasn't anyway. There would have been people killed in that pub. There would have been a lot of criminality in the area. But I was attracted to all this at that age. Um, so I started drinking, started going back to parties after the pub. Now, I would have been the youngest person there. Um, and I remember it was back at a party where I tried my first line of cocaine. And I probably in around 15, 16 maybe I was. Um, and I was quite young, but I loved I loved what, I, what it gave me when I tried it, you know. The acceptance that I was looking for, that's what I got. So you were trying to be part of the gang or part of the pack? Yeah, like part yeah. of the pack. I just want to fit in here. Um, and somebody had said to me, oh, look, do you want a bit of coke? And I was like, yeah, of course. I didn't play it down. I didn't act as if I was sure. I was like, yeah, and I just done it. Um, how I what did I what did I feel? It was I don't know. It was like just pure acceptance and felt a part of I guess. And how did you go then from drug user to well? Would you have described yourself as a drug dealer? Um, no. So obviously, as my childhood went on, I would always work. Um, just getting up to the usual um, young adult things like drinking doing a bit of drugs on the weekend, socially, I suppose. Um, and I always looked at it that way. I always looked at it socially. Um, it was when I sort of lost my job is where I needed to make money. And that's when I said, look, drugs is a quick and easy fix. Everybody knows you can make quick money off drugs, so that's what I needed to do. So you, at this stage, you were around 20 and you'd been working as a, a fitter. Yeah, so I worked as a cabinet maker at this point. Um, so I'd left the pub, myself and my partner, we were having our first child. So we were quite ecstatic about it, and I always wanted to be the one who provides. But obviously, when I told, when I was told I'm going to lose my job, it was, oh, what do I do here? So I needed to make money, um, and drugs was the only thing to make money in my area. Then you know, um, well, that's what I thought. So I oh yeah, got down the road of selling drugs, started selling crack cocaine and heroin, and yeah, I thought it was nothing like me. The money was there, life was great. I thought it was this big hot shot. Um, and it all went tits up there when the guards rang and said they were in me, they've had to gain an access into me uh, into my apartment and they found everything. Yeah, tell me this story because I don't want to make light of it, hmm. but it is a little bit faulty towers. The guards raided your house 
and then rang you to tell you <laughs> they were in your house. Yeah, so it was like it was on the weekend. I think I was over me. I was over me mother's. They'd obviously gained entry. And they had seen a letter with my name on it and my phone number, and they had rang my phone. And if anybody in the room had seen me that day, they would have seen the blood drain from my face. Um, I picked up the phone. They said, "Look, um, it's Blanchardstown, a Fingless Guard Station here, and we've raided your property, and we found something that you might want to come back here." And I was like, "Uh oh." You know, I was hoping that they found maybe a robbed laptop or something, but it wasn't. It was all the drugs. Um, I was forced driving at the estate, there was like six or seven squad cars, and then I remember walking into the apartment and there was like 12 guards just standing there and sitting there. And my first initial thing was like, look, I said to the guards, my partner doesn't know anything about this. I said, I don't want her to be involved in this anyway, like it's nothing to do with her. And fair play to them, they said, yeah, look, down to the back room. And they brought me down to the back bedroom and they said, look, here we go, there it is. And I was like, yeah, it is. And they're like, we weren't expecting this. That's just what what have they found? So they found 59 quarters of crack cocaine bagged up and sealed in a safe and an ounce of heroin as well. A substantial amount of drugs, like they said it themselves, they had a warrant for weed. You know what I mean? Um, and that's all they thought. They thought they were but what on. attracted the guards to you? Why, why were they coming to your house? You must have been, you were 18 months dealing at this stage. Yeah, so but like, so there's there's a little bit of a backstory to that. Um I would never have done that around my area. Um, I've always done that, done stuff elsewhere around Blanchetown because I didn't want anybody, because crack at the time it was a bad thing to sell. It's always heroin, you know. If you're selling cocaine, I know the two of them are completely the same. It's just how they're administered. But if you're selling weed or cocaine, like a social drug, would you say, it's almost like, oh, he's a good guy. But if you're selling crack and heroin, it's like, He's a doorboard. So I didn't want anybody to know what I was doing. So in my eyes, I was baffled as to how they gained entry and got this information. Now, look, the guard said it. We were tipped off. Um, and I was like, okay, but they were tipped off that I was selling weed. So they showed me the warrant for weed, and they were like, we weren't expecting this. And we, we giggled, and I said, well, I wasn't expecting you, was either, you know, that way. Like, But, um, so yeah, that's, that's what led me to getting four years in prison then. And that's another chapter then, which was absolutely crazy. Well, what did your partner say when the guards, like, you couldn't have hidden this from her because you had to go to court? Yeah, so, so, so it was actually, so I obviously had to come clean to my partner at some point. Um, but I remember when we were walking out of the apartment with the guards, the guards had everything in a big, like, evidence bag. And they had told my partner and said, look, it's it's only stolen goods. Like, they were obviously trying to keep her as well away from us. So fair play to them in that sense. But look, I had to come clean. I had to tell my partner what I'd done. Um she was shocked, obviously. But look, she was supportive. She like she always is supportive. But um she was obviously scared as well. And were you a dad at this point? Um I was, yeah. So I would have had my first child at this point. Um so I had all this to think about as well, you know. Um I was looking at a heavy prison sentence at this point. Like the charge I was the charge I had was a fifteen A charge and I carried a mandatory ten years. So in my eyes I was like, this is crazy, you know. Um, the judge let you off with four. Let me off, yeah. It's a way of putting it. Um, very lenient, yeah. So like, I remember standing in front of the judge. I didn't waste anybody's time. Like I, I wanted to get it over and done with as soon as possible. Obviously, the reason because I had my child. A lot of people when they come across these types of charges, they drag it out for years. I didn't want that. I just wanted to get it over and done with. Get in and get out. You know, if it was ten years, I wanted to start it now. Um, so the judge said to me, "Look, obviously, you didn't waste anybody's time." This carries a 10-year sentence, but he said, I'm not going to do that. He says, I'll give you four years. So 
as much as a relief, it was still very, very scary to know that I'm actually going to be in prison here for four years. And it was only when I got in, somebody had said to me, for every prison year, it's nine months. Like, you get three months remission. So I was thinking, okay, three years. But um, still very, very, very crazy to think that I was going to be in a prison cell for three years. Do you remember the first day going into Mount Joy? Yeah, it was absolutely nothing like I thought. It was like, it was like out of a movie. So it was real doom and gloom. You know that way? It was almost like, what is going on here? The walls, the painting on the walls, all just grey, just dull and old machinery. And I'm just like, what the hell? Like they had this one machine, they call it the boss. You know, you have to sit on it, check and make sure you have nothing inside or anything like that. And I was sitting on it like starkers in front of these men and they're asking to squat. It was just, it was all really crazy. And then I remember I got put into a cell and I was in the cell on my own. There was no telly, no nothing. And I was just like, how am I after getting myself into this situation? Like, what has happened? At one point, I sort of laughed to myself out of pure nerves and not knowing what to do. Um, but I just... It was then I had to just come to terms with what was happening. Like, I really had to just come to terms. And what... So you had gone from a world with your child, your partner, your foster family, and now... D- describe the world now. The wall's almost closed in on you in this cell. The wall is closed in on my cell. I'm the only person there along with my thoughts. If there was a telly, I might have helped, but there wasn't even a telly there to try and take my mind off things. So I was just there with my mind, with my thoughts. And when I, when you're in the mix of drugs, and like, you never ever think that you're going to get caught. I never thought I was going to get caught. And I was in Mount Joy and I was looking to, I was looking to be there for f- three years, you know. And how does that, I mean, we've all seen the movie, you said it was mm. like a movie, we've all seen the movies where you have to find your pack, you have <laughs> to make friends, you have to, get, you know, watch your back, all of that, like, what yeah. is the lifestyle like in terms of that, or what are the, did you know people in there already, Did was it intimidating? So, look, I could have went in there, I always say this, I could have went in there with a chip on my shoulder, acted a hard man, it wouldn't have stood to me, it would have just made things harder. I went in there as just a scared, scared person. Um, but at the end of the day, I knew not to show too much vulnerability because um, obviously that would have been seeked out by certain people. So I went in there and I was just being myself. <laughs> um, I did come up onto the land and I remember walking up onto D1 and I did know one or two people. They came over to me, they greeted me and they gave me clothes and stuff, which was almost like a little bit welcoming, but still at the end of the day, it was just all crazy. I was seeing a lot of crazy characters in there. Um, a lot of crazy things are seen in there, some serious beatings, and as you get talking to people, you hear what they're in for, which is like, whoa, you know that way, like, I remember, I think it was two weeks in, and a guy next to me, real nice chap, obviously me coming from where I came from, I wouldn't have taught anybody else, it's just, I don't know, it was weird, I didn't have any judgement on anybody, and he was like, ah, oh, how's things, and I was chatting away, and he's like, so what are you in for, and I was like, ah, oh, 15A, and I was like, okay, so he's asked me, I'll ask him, you know, I was like, what are you in for? He's like, ah, murder. And I was like, oh shit, like, you know, it was real, oh, what do I do here? Like, do I continue talking or do I just lead in this awkward oh, silence? Do, yeah, do, do. I was like, this awkward silence. I was like, oh, right, yeah, you know, playing it as if I knew all about it. But it was weird and that's what I was thinking. Jeez, like. And was that like a gangland murder? Or no, it- no, no, it was actually, it was just a murder. He, he'd actually killed his parents. Yeah, yeah, he'd actually killed his parents. I I didn't ask him that. He just said more, and I left it at that. I didn't want to get into detail. Um, it was actually somebody else I was talking to who was in with a similar charge with me, and I said, look, that dude's had to tell me. He's like, yeah, yeah, he killed his parents. And I'm like, oh, man. But 
he was he was a sound fella, you know. He was a he was a down and he's a good guy, like you know. And I didn't judge him for what he'd done. I was the rules are different when you're all in that cage, absolutely, than that what they would be out in the rest of the world. Yeah, like if I'm people out here now hear these things and people commit crimes, they just see them for the crime they commit. Well, I find it hard to compute that you just said someone who killed his parents is the same fella. Yeah, but like that, he actually he was a really really good guy. So yeah, people would find it hard to believe. He made a mistake, whatever brought him to that mistake, he done it. Um, but deep down, he was actually a nice guy. Were you doing drugs when you were in prison? Um, it wasn't so much. Um, there's a lot of heroin in jail. There's a lot of, uh, there is a lot of drugs in the jail. Um, I actually found my love of coffee in the jail. I used to hate coffee, hate it with a passion. And it was when I was in there, I said, right, in a cell, pure boredom sets in, you know. And I'm like, I need to do something. I'm like, do I start smoking? I was like, no, I don't like smokes. Never liked smokes. I was like, drinking, look, there's hooch there. I'll definitely have a dabble in hooch, you know, and white lighting and all that. I was like, do I go to drugs? I was like, I don't want to do drugs here, you know. I don't want to go down that road of... So I said, coffee, I wonder what coffee's like, you know. So I started making, got a little There are definitely worse things to be addicted to. Yeah, <laughs> so I got a... It was almost like my mind said, right, it has to be coffee because if it's going to be anything else, you're screwed. So I remember making the coffee, put an extra bit of sugar in it, made it a load of milk. And I remember took a sup and I was like okay look this is what's going to have to be so like that I just started drinking coffee all the time and that was like my little thing so you did your three plus years yeah. you kept the head down stayed out of trouble mm. do you remember the day walking out as well as you do the day walking in yeah I remember walking out and having all these promises and all these things that I'm going to do and the job I'm going to get and how I'm going to be so supportive and I'm never going to go back to that life and I fell flat on my face after about three weeks so when I got out, everybody wanted to be my friend. I just, I loved the thought of being accepted. Um, I had this street credit where everybody loved. Um, I started going out, I started partying, I started using, I started using the excuse that, oh, I might have been locked up. Just leave me be, just let me alone. I want to go out and I wanted to let me hair down. Which I was six months on and I was still doing it. Um, and my partner was getting fed up at the time. Like, and she had stood by you through all of this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, to find me to come out and absolutely throw everything back in her face. So the partying kept going, the partying kept going, and that's when the drugs started coming heavy. That's what I kept telling people, I'm only enjoying myself, what's the harm? But there was harm. I was harming myself, and my partner was telling me this, and I wasn't listening. To the point where your family, your partner, who'd stood by you while you went to jail for very serious drug offences, actually couldn't live with you outside jail. So yeah, it got to the point where they couldn't live with me. Nobody wanted me. I'd manipulated and lied and stole and done everything. And I got to the point where nobody could be around me. And I found myself homeless then. Um, and I was living in a car and it was like, man, another point where I thought, how am I after getting here? So you've gone, you've traded a, a cell, one prison, for a car. Yeah, a, yeah. A, it was a probably Peugeot. about the similar size. Yeah, a Peugeot 406. I think it was like a 94 Peugeot 406. Um and I lived in it. I had a couple of jackets that I'd throw over me and sleep in it. At this point, I was still using I was still doing everything that I thought, but I was doing it all on my own because nobody wanted to be around me. I was isolating myself. Um, and I got really, really, really lonely. And you were about, what, 28, 29 at this point? Yeah, yeah, 28, 29. Um, was that worse in prison, that point where you find yourself alone in a car with your fam and family and friends rejecting you? It is worse than prison because in prison you have people around you and they won't turn your back on you because, I don't know, it's just, it's the way it is in there. But 
when everybody has turned their back on you for the reason that you can't see, the way they seen it is they were showing me tough love. They needed to keep their distance from me, but I was like, the fucking neck of them. You know what I mean? Like, how dare they? How dare they do this to me? Who needs them and all, you know? But it was very lonely, and I was at that point where I was thinking, I need to do something here. And I remember on my 29th birthday, I was lying there, lonely as hell, about four in the morning, knock on the window. Looked up, seeing the reflection of the guard's jacket, and I was like, oh, no. I was like, this isn't good. And I get out of the car, and the guard looked at me, and he didn't look through me, he looked at me, and and the guard said to me, look, you have to move. And I said, oh, I'd love to, but I can't. And he sort of seen me, he didn't want to ask too many questions, you know, and I said, look, guard, I'm living here, you know, um, this is all I have. And he said, okay, jump back in. He says, but look after yourself. And got back into the car, put the seat back, threw the jackets off, and I was lying there, and I was like, look after yourself. I was like, why don't you just look after yourself? I'm like, how do, how do, how do, you, how do you look after yourself here? What? What am we gonna, What do I have to do? So like, really, what's what's my big issue here? Like, the big issue is addiction. I can't go without drugs. I need to get addiction sorted. So I knew of Kill Mine. I knew some great stories of Kill Mine. Which is a, a drug and alcohol treatment centre. Yeah, it is, yeah. They've some day programmes, they've treatment centres, residentials. Um, they're all over Ireland now, it's great. Um, so I made the contact with Kilmoyne and and I remember I got the phone call to say that was a bed for me in Kilmoyne Lodge, which is the men's residential treatment. And walking up to the door of Kilmoyne Lodge, I was shaking. Pure fear, fear of the unknown, fear of everything. What am I doing here? It was actually scarier going at the treatment than I was going at the prison because I knew I'm not going to go in here and I'm not going to be left alone. Like I'm going to have to start talking about what's going on for me and I'm going to have to address the issues that's brought me to where I am today. Um, so my whole time through there was the best ever, best decision I've ever made, the scariest decision, I, the scariest thing I've ever done. But the outcome was amazing. Like they've given me everything back. Um, football would have been a big thing that was taken away from me through addiction. Um, in there they encouraged me to go for trials for the Homeless World Cup, which I did. I got picked on the team. Went over and represented Ireland in Got Mexico City. To Mexico. Yeah, like crazy. You know that way, like um, from Blanchardstown to Mexico. From Blanchardstown to Mexico in Sacalo Square, wearing the Ireland jersey with my name on the back of it. Um, the guys in the homeless uh, street leagues are phenomenal. Like I remember the night before, they had us in a hotel. They had all the Ireland girl laid out in the hotel room for us. They made it really, really good for us. You know, they do great work. Um, but it went from there to being at Scala Square representing Ireland and I just sort of thought to myself like right I can do this you know I can really go with this like so from there on I just sort of said right I can do anything there's nothing really stopping me here Um, I remember afterwards I was on the Moira and Dottie show telling me story and that and, like, and I remember this is just something that sort of sticks out I remember it was quite funny and I went down to the uh, RT studios in Cork and the girl called me in and she's like come on sit up there and I was like what am I doing and she's like I just want to do your makeup and I'm like what? You know that way? I was like giggling myself. Like, and in my head, I'm thinking, so like, to start this year, I was homeless, living in a car. Now I'm sitting in an RT studio. I was waiting to go on a show. Yeah, I makeup feel like done. I, sh- I should point out that for listeners who are not familiar with television, all men wear makeup on television. <laughs> and if they well, tell you they don't, they're lying. No, they do. Yeah, they do. I went on like that. I've seen it. They do. But it was just, it was real sort of like, this is crazy, you know? Mm. A different world. You got back into exercise, you started doing some charity work and you got a, a proper job again. I was always a victim of my past and I always thought that my past was going to lead 
that was my life forever, but it's not. Um, once you sort of step out of that little, take the blinkers off, you know, look through the fog. There's more to life than what you really think. Um, criminality, drugs, there's more to life than all that. And so you're not trapped by the past anymore. You've gone back to college now mm. and you're looking at a new career path. You're, you're, you're studying community drugs and alcohol. Yeah, in, in, in UCD. UCD. Um, that's It's never something that I thought was going to happen. But I went back working in sales um, and my boss at the time was great, you know. I, I said to him, look, I think I want to... Uh, career change. I had a little bit of an accident with a car, I got hit by a car and sort of made me look at things differently and am I really working what I want to do? Like you should really love your job. Everybody's made to do something, you should do it. Um, so I told him and he said, yeah, look, go for it. And I told my partner and she said, yeah, go for it. So I left my job and I'm now doing a diploma in UCD um, and I'm now working in the services for Cool Mine and actually House helping women, um, which it's great. I absolutely love it. It doesn't feel like work. Um, and every day I go there, I learn something new about myself. You know, it's it's amazing, really. Well, Daniel, I can only wish you well with it. And thanks for sharing your story on the Indo Daily because yeah. it's fascinating. And we don't very often get to hear from people who have spent time in Mount Joy and even better again, have come out the other side a better person. So thank you. Yeah, no problem at all. Thanks very much. I'm Kevin Doyle and today's episode of the Indo Daily was produced by Mary Carroll, researched by Tabitha Monaghan, recorded by Dara Kelly, with sound design by Graeme Davison. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow or leave us a review.